Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The last of my ghost stories comes from Vienna. A reminder, my book, Emancipation, How Liberating Europe's Jews from the Ghetto Led to Revolution and Renaissance, is still available, although you have to go online to find it. Read it, and if you do, get in touch with me. Let me know what you think. And now, let's go to Vienna. My trip looking for Jewish ghosts was almost over. It was evening as the train slowly came to a stop at Vienna's West Bahnhof. The late commuters sloped along the platform, slumped with their end-of-the-day weariness. But my step was light. I knew where I was going. It's not that I'm a regular traveler here. Vienna's a bit of a backwater, and there isn't much in the way of news that happens here for a journalist to cover. But there is something about the place that lightens my step. That's odd, because this is a city where tourists are invited to go on Young Hitler in Vienna walking tours. I suppose it's because my ghosts are everywhere here, and they're closer to the surface. Vienna isn't Frankfurt, Hamburg, or Berlin. It wasn't flattened in the war. Give or take a few cobbles and the smell of horse dung, these are the streets my ghosts walked. These are the streets my grandmother dreamed of in New York. I don't think she ever saw them, but as a girl deep in the Austro-Hungarian Empire's eastern node, the city of Lemberg, today Lvov, it was Vienna she and her sisters dreamed of, as surely as the three sisters dreamed of Moscow and Chekhov's play. It was Vienna that the Jewish immigrants were trying to create in New York in the early part of the 20th century. This was the Jewish capital of the world. I have a friend who teaches in Vienna. American, not Jewish, won't tell you his name, for reasons you will soon understand. The first time we met, at a rather grand café along the Ringstrasse, he volunteered... I really feel the absence of the Jews more here than anywhere else in Europe. The fact that he made the statement without my prompting was interesting. I wonder how many people, as they travel the continent on business or for pleasure, bother to notice there are no Jews. My friend has lived in Vienna for a number of years, and I asked him if the natives ever brought up the Jewish question. The Austrians never mentioned them, he said. It is extraordinary, really. The community and the greatness of the city were inextricably linked. And in 1900, Vienna was great. The only serious rival to Paris is the world's cultural center. Freud, Mahler, Theodor Herzl, Alfred Schnitzler, Arnold Schoenberg. It would take a Vasari to do justice to the eruption of culture here that came from one community that a mere 50 years earlier was only allowed to reside in the city under very strict quotas, the restrictions on Jewish residents came to an end following the Revolution of 1848. And then, in 1860, Vienna's Jewish population was around 6,900. By the end of the decade, it was 40,000. By 1880, it was 73,000. At the turn of the century, it was well over 100,000. In the city's central districts, Jews were often 40% of the population. Most of the people were immigrants from the provinces, and they grabbed at the opportunities the big city offered. In short order, a third of the University of Vienna's student body was Jewish. According to a study by Cambridge professor Stephen Beller, in 1890, 22% of the law faculty was Jewish or of Jewish origin, and an astonishing 48% of the medical faculty came from the community. 
because of severe restrictions on Jews working in the civil service, many of these well-educated people turned to culture to earn a living. They wrote plays and started newspapers to review them. They provided the city's high and low culture, verbal entertainment in satirical and literary magazines, and its music, from light operettas to the podium of the state opera. Wealthy Jewish women organized salons where artists like Klimt could meet prospective patrons. Without this infusion of talent and energy, Vienna, in 1900, would have been a cultural backwater trading on its glory days of Mozart and Beethoven. I met my American friend for dinner at the North Alp restaurant in Leopoldstadt, the former Jewish immigrant quarter. It used to be known as Matzah Island. I told him about my search for ghosts in Hamburg, Berlin, and Frankfurt, and mentioned a film I had seen at the Deutsches Historical Museum in Berlin. It was an endless loop of aerial footage shot by the American Air Force immediately after the war, that showed the devastation of Germany's cities. A title would come up with a place name, say Frankfurt, then flyover images of street after street utterly destroyed. There is no earthly or heavenly justice for the crime of the Holocaust, but the utter destruction of those cities is a devastating form of vengeance. My companion picked up the theme of Austrian forgetfulness. Vienna had had serious damage done to it as well, he said, but unlike in Frankfurt or Berlin, the city had tried to recreate itself exactly as it was before the war. The fact that the Germans had rebuilt rather than recreated had helped that society come to grips with what had grown out of it. Said my friend, their architecture is a constant reminder in a Europe full of lovely historical cities of why they have none. He went on, the Viennese attitude to the Third Reich is nothing to do with us, we were victims too. He found that view more than a little difficult to live with. We took the tram back to the center of town, shook hands, and said good night. I headed back towards my hotel via the Judenplatz. I wanted to look at Rachel Whiteread's wonderful Holocaust memorial there. You'll know of it. The squat concrete cast of a library, books facing outwards, so you can't see their bindings or their titles. Unknown books. Unwritten books written by the people of the book. Choose your interpretation. The Judenplatz is a small square. If you didn't know where it was, you would never find it. Medieval lanes lead in and out of it. It's a shortcut home for the locals. People hurry by, one by one, occasionally a couple. They don't give it a second look, partly because the memorial is not illuminated. A surprise. It's a major piece of sculpture by an important artist, you might think it would be imaginatively lit at night. You would be wrong. In the expressionistic shadows thrown by street lamps, you cannot see the details. It looks like one of the Nazi bunkers that lined the Normandy beaches, rather than a monument to those who thought the contribution they made to the city's life would protect them from all harm. The next day, I decided to talk to someone about this willful forgetfulness. On this journey, I had held back from talking to anyone about my ghost hunting. I thought they would think I was a little bit crazy. But I feel at home in Vienna, so my inhibitions were dropped. I went to the university, the Jewish community's beachhead in its campaign to integrate and change the city. The campus is a series of barrack-like buildings, plain, cream-colored, three stories high with fiercely pitched red-tile roofs. 
They are arranged into a series of quadrangles and courtyards, with less fly-posting on them than I've ever encountered on any university campus I've ever visited. I walked through an entry passage. It was marked Ludwig August Frankel Way. A ghost, but I know his story. Standing in the passage, a young woman wearing glasses was handing out free copies of the Viennese newspaper De Presse. I asked her if she spoke English. She did. Her name was Valerie Eder. I pointed at the sign and asked Valerie if she knew who Frankel was. No, she replied, but I've been looking at the name and wondering. So I told her his story. The 1848 revolution in Vienna started when students at the university marched peacefully to the parliament building to demand academic freedom and an end to censorship as first steps towards building a democratic society. As happens to this day, the forces responsible for crowd control overreacted. The day's demonstration ended with five young men shot dead. Two of them were Jewish. After that, the gloves were off. The students and their worker allies seized control of the city. Prince Metternich, 75 years old and up to that point still running the show throughout the German-speaking world, snuck out of town. From the Imperial Palace came word that all press censorship was over. Free speech was allowed. That night, a young Jewish student named Ludwig August Frankel wrote a poem called The University, describing the day's events. It praised the students as Austria's liberators. The poem was immediately set to music and became the Austrian Marseillaise. By osmosis, everyone seemed to catch the tune. A few days later, the victims of the police overreaction were buried in a common grave. As the coffins were carried in procession from the campus to the city cemetery, thousands lined the streets holding sheets of paper with Frankel's lyrics printed on them, and at the bottom it said, the first free publication in Austria. And that's who Ludwig August Frankel is, I finished. Valerie Eder thanked me. I asked her what she thought of the fact that he was Jewish, that so many of the people who made Vienna a great city were Jewish, and that now there were virtually no Jews here. She told me that, actually, her best friend was Jewish, and so she knew quite a bit about Judaism. I don't have a problem with Jewish people, she said. I do have some questions about the Jewish religion especially its rules about women. I nodded. From the time the ghettos opened up, those rules had been questioned. In some cases, they had driven women away from the community. In others, accommodations had been made. The religion itself had reformed, and the old prayer that men gave, thanking God for making them of the stronger sex, was dropped by many. The religion's adaptability had been a hallmark of its life in Vienna. Valerie explained her best friend is a lesbian, which put such rules into even sharper focus. Her girlfriend is also Jewish, she told me. Well, I said, their kid, if they have one, will be Jewish at least. Yes, she laughed. Tucked away in a corner two quadrangles over is the university's Jewish institute. I stopped in. The office is run by a woman named Dora Fisher, a Jewish enough-sounding name, but she is of mixed ethnicity, none of it Jewish. Her mother was Thai, her father Italian. Her presence in the Institute wasn't surprising. Most of the people you find working in Jewish museums and institutes on the continent aren't Jewish, for obvious reasons. But I'm always curious where the affinity comes from. In her case, it was the discrimination she suffered growing up in the Austrian countryside. The prejudice there was bad. I was a different ethnicity and not a Catholic, she told me. 
it was easier to blend in in Vienna. I told her her feelings about Vienna mirrored those of the parents of people like Freud and Mahler, who came to Vienna because of the persistent prejudice they encountered in the provinces of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We talked about the path those earlier immigrants blazed, and who walks it now. She was quite interested to hear my impressions of Hamburg's Turkish community, how it has organized itself, made its accommodations with the majority, carved out a unique identity, Turkish and German, in ways that reminded me of how the Jewish community organized itself after the ghetto. She knew quite a bit about Hamburg, and I got the sense from her that that port city has become a beacon for other immigrant communities, an example of how to stand up with a foot in two distinct worlds and maintain your balance. The Jewish Institute's librarian, Monica Schreiber, was a convert. A sociologist by training, she had gone to Israel to do research into Samaritan communities, met a local guy, fell in love, married. The arrival of children focused the woman question on her. Neither her husband nor she was particularly religious, but they both wanted the children to be Jewish, so she converted. I kept meeting converts while looking for ghosts. In Berlin, at Shabbat prayers, I had met a six-foot-six-inch-tall African-American from Chicago. The first question I asked, even before his name, was, When did you convert? The second was, Why? He answered, I felt an affinity with the people. Valerie, Dora, Monica, and Mark, that was my Berlin friend's name, all had that in common. The affinity for those who suffer, for outsiders, I think that is the meaning of my ghost stories. The emancipated lives they led in the 150 years between the ghetto and the gas chamber are a signpost for minorities, society's outsiders everywhere in this second age of mass migration. The last ghost I will tell you about was a man named Mordecai Ginsberg, pseudonym Aviezer. He was of the first generation to leave the ghetto behind. He told the story of his extraordinary times in an autobiography, what happened to him had universal meaning. He knew that. Come, he wrote, let me be a parable unto you. And that's why I keep looking for ghosts. Each one's life is a lesson. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, listen to the other stuff, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.